Hi, and welcome to Showcast, the podcast that explores the creative journey of concerts, films, theatre shows, and public art made with Notch. Join me, Kat Kemsley, as we hear from the people behind the pixels. If you're looking forward to live after COVID, then this is the episode for you. To round up the season of the podcast, I invited Laura Frank and Nils Porman back to discuss what the future of live events might look like post-COVID. In our previous conversations, Laura and Nils have shared their opinions on education, wellness and community, as well as virtual production and the changing shape of the industry. And today, we've got the opportunity to explore some of these topics in more detail. You're listening to The Notch Showcast. Hi, Laura. Hi, Nils. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Kat. Hello. Hi. It's great to have you here today to talk about what we've all been anticipating, which is the return of live events, mass gatherings and cultural experiences. In our past conversations, we've discussed the importance of client education and community building, as well as virtual production and the changing shape of the workforce. To round up this season of the podcast, I thought it would be interesting to explore some of these topics in more detail and discuss some of the major changes that we've experienced this year and to start looking to the future. So how does that sound to you guys? Sounds great. Can't wait to learn more myself. Yeah, let's shape that. So in 2020, you guys wrote, co-wrote a few articles, but you've known each other a while longer. So before we get into it, like, how did you guys meet each other? I think we first met at LDI a few years back and really haven't lost sight of each other since. I think our mutual respect and collaboration has very gradually been growing over the years. So it's not been a full on, okay, let's let's do this many projects together. There was no mm. commitment on that front, but we, we just have a great appreciation for each other and the, the methods in which we work, I would say. I think that's very true. When you speak to someone who has such a thoughtful approach to process, which when you value that yourself, even if your process doesn't even align or even make sense, knowing someone who has thought through this work with care and interest you stay connected to those people because they're always a learning resource, even when their, their approach may not make sense. And I'm not even saying that of Nils. His approach has always made <laughs> sense but um, to me, but it may not be the way I think through the challenges we face. So it's always a learning opportunity to see the way Nils has approached a project mm. or a challenge and to then be able to dissect that with them and learn from their experience. So the few opportunities we've had to work together, they're not as frequent, but um, the experience of talking to each other, I think is always very rich because we both really value learning from process and from other people's process. And oh. if I if I can add that learning from the dialogue, because you don't necessarily know all the things that are in your own head either, because you do need dialogue and you do need to, to have that sparring to get mm. the best out or to even question yourself, to, to see your previous mistake or come up with something new. And like Laura said, on the few things that we have done together, like some of the upfronts in New York, it's been a very fruitful mutual process. Lovely. Well, well that's, that's really nice to hear. I feel like I need to start asking some of my old friends about when we first met and <laughs> how they how they see our relationship. It's quite nice to hear. Um, 
Anyway, so before we start looking forward to our hopefully bright and bountiful future, I think it's worth taking a look at the past year. So for you, what questions has the situation of 2020 brought to the forefront? The lesson of 2020 is not so much about the work we do, just how much of it we do. And Mm. it's fascinating to me to see everyone coming back from this pause. And as they dip their toe in their water, I think people are so conscious of just how hard we work. And I think people talk about wanting to approach it in a different way and have a better relationship to the demands they put on themselves to do this work well. So for me, the lesson of 2020 is that everyone had this moment to take a breath, reconnect to hobbies, their families, their relationships, and Mm -hmm. value that. So they want to integrate their personal life and wellness into this work they love. And it's not an easy challenge. Yeah, I think, Laura, you're hitting the nail on the head. There's new approaches. There was a lot of working from home that was reconnecting with loved ones and hopefully not not getting too bugged down at home, but also hobbies and um, and personal interests, as well as growing professionally. And let alone talking about virtual productions and, and all that that may have incurred. But it's also about how we value our own time. Absolutely. And as, as things start to kick up again, and perhaps the like financial situation, a lot of people find themselves in at the moment after having had a, a light work here, um, there's obviously like a lot of anxiety to want to deliver and to want to take on as many jobs, but also not necessarily wanting to compromise what it is that you found in not working yourself to the bone 24-7. Yeah, absolutely. It also has a dimension of under what conditions are we now coming back? Because this is a conversation I've been having throughout the last couple of days and talking about projects that were met with so much enthusiasm because they were the one few projects in between in the last year that a lot of people started to overpromise and started to sort of really sell in to that opportunity and then meeting challenges uh, left, right and center because our workflow throughout the last year has evolved and it has become more complex. So Mm -hmm. I do think that now more than ever, I would advocate and I think Laura does advocate too, which is very thorough preparation is even more important than it was previously because we want to now shine the moment that we get back. Absolutely. And shine bright, right? Because we in this pause have become the center of the visual real estate of the work we're doing in virtual production. We have to come back and perform flawlessly under the not always the clearest expectations as the whole industry is learning how they will incorporate either mixed reality or virtual production techniques and It just means communication and planning is so key because there is so much unspoken expectation because of what a client saw on YouTube and thinks will be part of their project without clearly asking for it or budget expectations, trying to get those aligned with what this work actually costs. And if they're in person at these events, dealing with the COVID compliance issues on top of it, the work is slower 
it's more challenging and it is more integrated between all the departments. And these are the things that we talked about in those articles from last fall because it's the same people, the same gear, and it's a new process. And we have to be thoughtful about the language to that process and communicating well. I'm wondering, Laura, have you been approached with new projects that have actually been much more focused on the old way of delivering a project? Because we have been quite busy on the content production side in our team throughout the last couple of weeks. However, our team remains remote, but we are now being asked to pitch and work on projects that are using traditional ways of delivering. I just finished a project completely remote in my pre-pandemic position of screens producer. It was a very traditional approach, but not because now there, there's more of a crossover with film type production in live event work. So it was, it was a hybrid in that way, but without using some of the new screens technology approaches. Yeah, it, it's a multi-layered question because um, we spent a lot of time planning and yet the complexity for me in that case was not being present and recognizing all those clues and things you learn just by listening and watching mm -hmm. that I was removed from. So I found it very challenging. But certainly, I think that the roles you're describing and, and the responsibilities you're describing, many of them had remote characteristics before. And hopefully that communication and process has improved in this time. Yeah, I do think that it's also reading the undertone and between the lines. And you do have to know the people that you're working with very well mm. in order mm. to pick up on the finer minutiae of how they actually are. With my business partners, sometimes I don't know whether I talked with them or whether we just wrote something. It just becomes exchangeable to me. But with other people, reading the, the written language is very, very different to experiencing them on site, for example. And there is a disconnect for me that I've only very recently been experiencing that definitely makes the new and, and shiny production world of everything being remote. Now, I had to question it a little bit going further because I do think it works well when you know each other well, but you have to listen so carefully when, mm -hmm. when you don't. Yeah, absolutely. The encouragement for everyone to work remotely and to work from home has been a massive culture shift. And it does open up a lot of possibilities for people who aren't living in big cities and for people who are caregivers with dependents. But there are definitely shortcomings, which, you know, you've just mentioned a few of them struggling to build rapport with people or to read between the lines of written communication and to feel kind of maybe parts of a project, like you're actually there in the room, bouncing ideas off of each other. like as things are at the moment, it's a bit difficult to do that over Zoom. You can't have a big production meeting. Personally, I feel like those conversations, online video calls, four's got to be a max. <laughs> you can't really be in a room with, with 10 people trying to discuss ideas. But, um, you know, have you guys found any ways or any methods to kind of improve your remote communication? Like, have you found any coping mechanisms to communicate virtually? On my end, I've learned a little bit more patience 
with working for myself and exploring something. I do think that because we have been working in this digital realm for a long time, that was there previously. But I do think that I have the tendency to try and answer an email or answer a uh, a line of communication when I have something to say. Like I'm not trying to write a holding message. I'm trying to say, here is a solution, or this is a, a very important question to me. So I, I like to keep this more concise when it is professional. Yeah, even pre-pandemic, I had a three-sentence rule with emails or any kind of digital communication. If it was more than three sentences, I had to ask myself if this was a phone call because mm. it was just this, you know, if you started getting into complex topics, people are going to stop reading or digesting. Um, mm -hmm. But now so much of our digital communication is shared or group-based, either using tools like Slack or Discord, that you're really forced to keep everything written for the, the fact that it can be shared, documented, and referred back to as the production progresses. So I think speaking concisely and clearly is critical. Laura, you, you're mentioning something that I'm, I'm totally with you on that. Whereas when I'm on site, Slack and tools like that start becoming very, very much in the way for me now, mm. because it's so hard to backtrace a communication. Everything that we put into a written chat form evaporates away into the thread and then yeah. you have to re-repeat it. And it's it's becoming this sort of technical stammer where you have to say, well, I pinned it to the channel. Because it's written, we now think it's searchable. But actually, we also feather out into different channels and that becomes a challenge. Yeah. And then <laughs> I do think that going back to word of mouth, so to say, has really saved me on site because as you both may know, I've recently just come back from an installation, which was a traditional theater show and producing that, those digital tools suddenly didn't reconcile the production anymore. It mm. had to go back to the hands-on approach. Something that I've just written down while we spoke was grasp. Grasp is something that I'm really, really missing because our virtual presence, let's call it that, forbids grasping something on site. If that is a pen or a cable or grasping somebody by the shoulder and saying, hey, no, hang on, I've got, I've got a solution here. Or to interject into a conversation, even if that's probably not very polite, but saving a lot of work down the line. The immediacy of that was quite revealing to me. And we ended up with daily technical meetings right in the theater, right there, the way you know them, and they do work. It's quite fascinating. I feel like you're pointing out the ways these digital communication tools become this crutch because people feel like, well, the information is available. I don't need to be present with it. I'll go back and collect it when I am available. And mm. I find that very misleading because what you're describing, that experience of being present, building the production where everyone's kind of engaging and problem solving together as things are evolving is critical because it is this group knowledge base as opposed to Slack or Notion or Airtable that actually in some ways makes you dumb because you're like, well, the information's out there. It's relevant to me when I need it. But when I need it, 
I don't know how to search for it because I wasn't there when it evolved. And I see people really struggle with that. Mm. Some people find this a very natural way of working and they're very comfortable with it. I also find they tend to be the people who are monitoring it all the time. Yes, you're right. There is a difference between something being recorded and being at the ready. And that, I think, is where it's lulling us into a false sense of security. And it's actually making things slower. I haven't found a solution where everything could be done in a production just remotely. We do need some people to have that immediacy. There's pitfalls to both sides of it, because obviously you can have a conversation in person and... You know, perhaps some of what you discussed was completely forgotten and you've not got any way to back that up. But just when it comes to -to day-to-day task management or agreements, there's got to be a balance of both in some ways where perhaps you're having these conversations in person and then communicating them, broadcasting them with a wider team, indexing it so that it is accessible to everyone because transparency is really important for teamwork, in my opinion. But Laura, in one of your articles, you wrote something and it really struck me. It was quite like a poignant statement. And I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit here. Your old job isn't coming back anytime soon. And theatre concerts and events will gradually start re-establishing shows for reduced audience sizes. But many talented production professionals will not be able to wait. And many will find other jobs and won't come back to their prior fields. And this will mean a years long recovery process to the quality of live entertainment that was produced in early 2020. So yeah, quite like hard hitting. And it kind of makes me question, you know, how can we future proof the live events industry? Yeah, I mean, mean, it's a good question. It's almost like there's going to be this technology gap. And and maybe you've heard this expressed in in people you've talked with. But, you know, there, there is a group of people who jumped into this new technology and did all the research and R&D time in what, with what gear they had available to prepare themselves for this evolution of mixed reality and virtual production. Mm-hmm. And there's also a large group of people who either didn't have access to the gear, didn't feel uh, they had a lot of strengths working with 3D tools and software, who feel left behind. And I think there is not necessarily a knowledge gap, but there certainly is going to be an experience gap for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, we have people who maybe aren't as experienced in production, but maybe know the technology and tools really well because they've either learned Unreal or in some other capacity and are now being pulled into the production world and have that learning curve ahead of them. It, it's a real mix. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't have any great insights there. I just think the challenge is definitely um, rebuilding for this rush to get back to work. Because I think that's the other component is people really need to be working. I feel that for us, it's been amplifying a tangent that we've been on for a while, which was to take whatever comes our way in content production and move it into a real-time environment. Uh, I see a lot of pitches that require a pre-pandemic delivery, that is rendered content and very traditional media server programming, which is absolutely fine. But under the hood, here we're describing the car, but what drives it is still up to us. And so Mm. trying to get our teams and our friends and colleagues to, or encourage them to use new tools, I feel 
was right in 2020, was right before that, and will continue to be. But there is, of course, the danger that we become mm. engineers, way over artists. And I, I do like to think that we need to strengthen that other muscle as well. There's certain things that are worth exploring and going back to, and in others, it's also good to say no, and then see if others may want to take up that gap. And therefore, it is about building the community and then understanding where my knowledge ends and somebody else's kicks in. And not wear too many hats. Yeah, absolutely. I guess like recruiting outside of what is conventionally live events is kind of what we're saying in some ways, like people with this experience in real-time software or in programming and creating a broader broader workforce to drive the innovation and keep pushing things forward. Because obviously, yeah, I think as things start to go back to normal, I think any show would be appreciated, right? So like anyone like, yeah, concert in the park, great, let's go. But I, I'm not sure how long that novelty will last. <laughs> yeah, it has to be visceral. It has to be mm -hmm. something that, that people want to uh, want to engage with. It will be very, very exciting to see what's coming up in the next couple of months and uh, and years even. I, I feel things are coming back. The high note here is people are thinking about projects. They are asking for, for things that are, again, really impossible in the time frame that they have mm -hmm. available. It doesn't seem that, that the drive to do events has gone away. Mm -hmm. Yet we are still faced with what you want to do this in eight weeks time. You were nuts. You're still nuts. Um, but let's see <laughs> what we can do. And that's the other side of the opportunity, I think, in front of us. One opportunity here is to come back to our work with more wellness in mind. But I think the exciting part for me is... Is there a new way to do this work? What other technologies are in play? The ways we've been using tools like Notch, are, are we using them to their best capacity or have we just been filling the need that was in front of us in the short timeframes that we've had? Can we make these experiences richer if we're approaching work in a new way? And how would we make it better? And so that's the other side of this opportunity moment that I hope people can incorporate into their work is that they're thinking about the projects and the people they interact with more holistically. I recently watched an interview with Live Design's Marion Sandberg and LD Paul Guthrie. They discussed the potential for Live after COVID to be another roaring 20s. And I think from the rate at which festivals in the UK are selling out that this is a real possibility. But many people have anxieties about returning to work and delivering projects to these new limitations, to these new kind of crazy timelines that are being thrown out as well. Um, what advice can you give to someone getting back on the horse? The challenge of, of not underselling yourself is very palpable. I mean, there are going to be people in financial situations where they just, they need to get back to work. But my advice is to come back strong, knowing your worth and that the value you offer a production is real and to not undersell yourself in an effort to get back to work. Do it from a position of strength and self-worth. Absolutely. And this is quite a practical question, but have you got any advice on how to better protect yourself in situations where productions might be cancelled at the last minute? I feel like this is a real risk now that we face and last minute cancellations. Um, are there any precautions that you'd advise putting in place? 
Well, I always had um, work for hire agreements with my subcontractors as well as with my client to be covered in circumstances where there were last minute cancellations. So you can negotiate that as part of your deal memo or work for hire agreement. And if those are terms that you don't use in your professional practice, maybe should consider them, but some kind of written document with your employer or your subcontractors to at least outline the fact that a gig may cancel a week out. And what does that mean? Are you going to be paid for half of it, just the prep period? Um, is there any compensation? I, I've certainly had contracts where, um, you know, it's at will employment and, uh, you know, a gig could disappear 48 hours out and I wouldn't be compensated at all. And, and that was just the nature of the work. But you need to have some kind of coverage and documentation in place to at least have that outline so you know what you've agreed to ahead of time. Yeah. Surround yourself with people that actually like those terms and honor those terms themselves. It's not easy, but I, I do think they exist. And on the other hand, make sure that certain things can only happen on, on the basis of contracts. It sounds so boring, but having that creates the freedom to create. And even as an individual freelancer, you can put these contracts and precautions in place. It's interesting that you say that, especially in the UK, being a freelancer does actually mean that you have the right to substitute, which means that should you yourself fall sick, you have the right to substitute your own work with somebody else. You should give your employer the right of first refusal for a replacement that you have in mind, but that goes both directions. I heard an interview on the radio with the Flaming Lips, Wayne Coyne, mm -hmm. and as well as talking about their like unforgettable bubble concert, Wayne had also said that perhaps in the future, we can all make a bit less money and gig at smaller concerts and festivals. In your opinion, from the position of stage design and production, is it possible to maintain a healthy live industry with limited attendance to festivals and concerts? Well, we have an interesting test case coming up. I, I, I'm very curious about New York City and Broadway. I mean, they're saying they're going to full audiences and the state of that particular industry was it took you know, very full capacity to afford some of these complex, expensive productions. So I had expected there would be this pursuit of simpler, more performance-focused, less design-focused performance, you know, as things were ramping back up. But I don't know. I'm very curious to see how this evolves. I'm kind of curious to know about like the adjustment period of when the productions come back, are people willing to invest as much into a smaller audience? So, uh, you know, are our ticket prices going to be higher? I don't know. It's kind of a lot of unknowns at the moment. There's a, there's a lot of wiggle room. And I think there's mm. going to be a lot of room for also creating new revenue streams. So mm. maybe the production itself gets smaller, but there is a way of selling an extra ticket or two for a small venue where people can partake in a virtual way and still yeah. see their favorite band and see them in a private way rather than on a big stage in an iMac. I feel like there will be an increase in events that are both live and live streamed. It seems like that's what a lot of our designers in the industry want to work towards of having this kind of mixture of, of both live and virtual. And this integration will undeniably 
expand the role of video in live events and potentially make additional flourishes such as AR for the at-home audience a very popular design choice. So do do you think we need to change the way that we design and organize productions? Well, I I think that's part of the evolution. Yeah, I think we are, are, and we're in the process. And that's not for for us in the live events world to decide. It's also for the audience to... Uh, and the artists to work out. And if we can come to an understanding that all of those crafts are worth their while, then we can probably also make it less about a fight for price or like a fight for budgets on the live events and content people, and much more about doing less of these gigs, but building them well. I, I am fascinated at times that um, the, an early challenge at the beginning of the pandemic was we had a lot of discussion about audience. How are we going to reach audience, and how are going to how are people going to feel that presence of being together when we can't be together? And ultimately, I think we face the same challenge in hybrid productions of our near future, how we engage with the audience. So uh, to your point, Nils, I think the, the audience will drive a lot of our future choices. And Nils, in our last interview, we spoke about the captivating nature of something happening live and in real time in front of you. And I've been thinking about this and the way that in the past, many people's reaction to like something live was to film this experience on their phone, which is interesting because obviously that is through a a screen they're then you know kind of viewing the experience through a screen anyway and it does open up maybe even more flexibility to these new I say new technologies but these emerging technologies of AR XIMR and I also kind of see a year of being deprived of live experiences as an opportunity to alter this behavior potentially and um, and reimagine and improve the live experience as well yeah I know what do you reckon Yeah, I I don't see us separating our phones from our experience of live anytime soon. So Mm. it it would be nice to find either a way to incorporate those phones. But I, yeah, I think the phones are so critical to the way people seem to enjoy their experience of, of an event. It's also, let's not forget, become a metric of, of success to the artist as well. It's a currency of, um, of appreciation in the digital domain. We are working ultimately to, to create these experiences that are ultimately short lived. But I do also think that appreciation comes with creating a memory. And that to me is sometimes the one that invites either a certain etiquette with your phone and saying, well, um, now is the time to get it out and to do something with it. And now is the time to just listen and experience this firsthand. Um, We'll see. Artists will definitely shape that and audiences will definitely massively shape that too. And if you look deep into your crystal balls, what do you see taking off in popularity in a post-COVID world? I mean, if we really knew this, we'd be very rich after (laughs) investing in stocks and shares and all of that. But, you know, is there anything that you're kind of getting a sense that this is going to be quite popular? Acoustic guitars. (laughs) (laughs) NFTs. (laughs) 
Well, we're already talking about it to me. I think if we can reclaim our phones in some way and make them part of the design experience. And I just got back uh, a few weeks ago from a trip into the Amazon. And the thing I was most impressed about was, you know, hours boat ride to get to a village where there is no electricity, but there are Mm. solar panels, a satellite interconnection, and people have phones. As much as I struggle with this device and how much attention it takes from our humanness, they're not going anywhere. So I want to co-opt them back in the design process. And as Nils was saying, like create moments where putting them away is satisfying Mm -hmm. in an entertainment experience. So you're very right. And maybe I can add to your experience there too, because I've just come back from China and phones are everywhere. They're ubiquitous and they're not just there like they are in, in the West or in Europe. They're also your passport. They are your money and they are your day-to-day access to health certification. Talking about COVID, they are so part of your personality, your digital DNA. And while that might not be great, it's also something that we then have to design for, like Laura says. Absolutely. I kind of like, I had this funny idea the other day of, you know, with, with AR, if there's a way of getting everyone to sign into their concert with their barcode on their phone. And then at certain points in the show, when you go to film, I guess the, uh, the technology takes over and just blacks it out. And it's like, nah, just watch. <laughs> <laughs> just watch. <laughs> um But yeah, anyway, guys, that's about time for today. But I've had so much fun talking to you. It's been really thought-provoking. It's been really exciting. I can't wait till we can do it IRL at the pub, hopefully (laughs) one day soon. Um, But thank you so much for coming on twice this season and um, taking time out of your busy days to to have a chat with me and and share your thoughts and your wisdom on, on these topics. Thank you for having us. Great to talk with you, Kat. Bye now. You can find out more on Framework and their upcoming events by heading over to their website, framework-community.com or by following them on Instagram and Twitter at framework underscore org or on Facebook at Framework Community. You can find out more about Dandelion and Burdock by heading over to their website, dandelion-burdock.com or by following them on Instagram at Dandelion Burdock Studio and Twitter at dnb underscore info. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, let us know on Twitter or Facebook at NotchVFX. And don't forget, if you'd like your work featured on our Instagram feed, use the hashtag MadeWithNotch. Next week, Matt Swoboda joins me to talk about some exciting changes coming to Notch later this year, including a new UI, new volumetric capabilities, and our move into version 1.0. Today's episode was mastered by Tor Aynes and produced by Ben Stamps and myself, Kat Kemsley. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.